Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Catherine Frank is a cultural anthropologist, sex researcher, and writer. Her most recent book, Plays Well in Groups, A Journey to the World of Group Sex, explores the phenomenon of group sex across time and place. She is also the author of G-Strings and Sympathy, Strip Club Regulators and Male Desire, and a co-editor of Flesh and Fantasy, Producing and Consuming Exotic Dance. Frank is also a scholar-in-residence at the Department of Sociology at American University in Washington, D.C., and a faculty associate at the College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor, Maine. Today, I would like to welcome Dr. Catherine Frank to our show. Uh, She has a book called Plays Well in Groups. That's a journey through the world of group sex. Hi, Kate. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me. So, one of the first questions I wanted to ask you after reading this amazing book, was what made you become interested in sex research in the first place? Because I know that this is not your first book on sex research, but it is something specific to group sex, but you had some books prior to that. So can you talk a little bit about how you got interested in sex research and how you got to this book? Sure. Yeah, my first, my earlier studies were, um, more uh, situated ethnographic. Um, my first book was on the male regulars of strip clubs. Um, and I think for me, sexuality has always been intriguing because I am a cultural and psychological anthropologist. I'm interested in the things that are um, universal or transcultural, if not universal, but you know, we find in a lot of human cultures, but that, um, are also shaped in very specific locations. So, you know, sexuality is one of those things that's biological, cultural, psychological, um, it's political. It's got so much coming in that shapes what we think of as our natural sexualities. And so I guess that's always been fascinating to me. Um, I've sort of gravitated towards those types of questions uh, in my research for 15 years, I think, at this point, and I still haven't figured out all my questions yet. So, so how did um, how did you get the idea to write a book about group sex? Because it's not something that people seem to talk about a lot, or seem to. I mean, there's always like a pop culture type interest, but not necessarily a scholarly interest. So, what made you want to write a book about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was an interesting process. I was actually at one point doing um, more of an ethnography on uh, lifestyle or swinging communities. Um, That became difficult just because of uh, confidentiality issues. And um, then I was writing on marriages. I was doing interviews on monogamy, um, why people wanted to be monogamous, what they thought they were getting out of those types of arrangements, and then what people uh, how people were living and negotiating non-monogamous relationships. Um, so, but as I was writing both of those books, you know, I was having some, I guess, again, some confidentiality issues with writing it up the way I wanted to. And then I 
just really started to become interested in group sex as sort of something that was kind of hanging in the background of a lot of stories people were telling me. Not just lifestyle people, but people who had brought in a third partner for a threesome for a birthday or something of that sort. Um, and, I, and I was realizing that there really was very little literature on it, especially in anthropology. Um, so there were some earlier uh, accounts of tribal rituals or things of that sort, which we can get into some of the problems with that, those accounts later. But at any rate, I was thinking for something that was so transgressive, something that we find across time and place, um, it was fascinating that there had been so, so little written on it. Um, so I decided to use some of the knowledge that I had from, you know, really going to sex clubs all over the place, from interviewing people about their sex lives, whether for the monogamy project or the lifestyle project or um, just other types of uh, interview situations. And I just wanted to use some of that knowledge and really reflect on group sex across time and place. So it was a broader, it was a much broader project than I normally do. Uh, mm-hmm. And that way it was really fulfilling and exciting. I also bit off a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, it became quite large and um, I don't regret it. I had an amazing time writing it and I learned so much. But um, there's a lot there's a lot there to touch on. Yes, definitely. There's a, a massive amount of research in this book. I mean, from the historical to the political. And I wanted to ask you, how did you prepare to even put all this together to try to tell some sort of story? Because for in, in your book, group sex, you define it very clearly. And it's not always the way that you would expect, I guess, of some people really expect it to be because you also include other things like gang rape and other acts of violence as well. Mm-hmm. So how did you even figure out how you were going to define this and then how you were going to bring about all this research together to tell a story about what this means? Yeah, it was, um, you know, actually the, for- the framing of it came together relatively naturally. My question was really what, why is group sex so emotionally and symbolically powerful for humans? And then how is this power used in social life? Um, so I also then also wanted to explore in different situations, what does group sex look like when it happens and what does it mean for the people who are having it? So there was like these overarching questions and then these more specific local questions. Um, and so I looked at the psychological implications um, of sex in general and then group sex in particular. Um, so that where I started looking at sex as involving the boundaries of the body and the self, and so how it's intertwined with our social emotions, you know, disgust, shame, and guilt, from the very moments when we first start learning about it. Um, And it's because of this power, this uh, emotional impact, that, you know, group sex can easily become wrapped in additional, more culturally specific meanings. You know, group sex is violating more discussed rules, psychic boundaries, and cultural norms than dyadic sex. And there's these relationships of witnessing and being witnessed that are involved. So when I went to define it, I really wanted to get the, in my definition, I wanted to have this relationship of witnessing and being witnessed. I didn't want to necessarily just say group sex starts at four people, right? (laughs) Because, you know, there were some uh, practices like the hot wife lifestyle where um, some men were, excited by the idea of their female spouse or partner having sex with extra 
dyadic partners, right? Mm-hmm. Where the whole erotics of the relationship is wrapped up in having, being a witness to these outside encounters, right? Whether or not they're even present in the room or how it's unfolding. I also didn't want to try to make uh, distinctions between, um, you know, judging encounters as sex or not, which is, as we all know, can become a huge quagmire. Right? Yeah. What if a couple just has oral sex? Or, you know, how do you how do you distinguish what counts as sex and what doesn't? So for me, it was the erotics of the witnessing and being witnessed. Um, so then I was, the reason it sort of branched into even things like violence is what I did with that definition is I wanted to look at these uses to which group sex could be put, the things that it does for people. Because really, there are some people who would argue there's some type of uh, evolutionary reproductive benefit to group sex in humans. But the fact is that most human cultures have had, um, if not completely private, but relatively private sexual encounters. It seems to be a preference, if not always possible, right? So when group sex happens, it does have these additional means, usually transgressive ones. Um, and one of those things that it does is demonstrating inclusion and exclusion from groups. So that's where I started looking into the gang rape because gang rape is, you know, a widely used form of social control. Um, it's used to punish gender transgressions or uh, reproduce or establish hierarchies, um, mark differences. And then it can be also deployed in warfare really to destroy social ties. Um, and, and gang rape is not... I guess one of the things that intrigued me here, it was very difficult, uh, the reading and the research for that, those um, months I was writing those sections of the book were not easy, but they were in some ways very interesting because the fact is there are other punishments that could be used that symbolically um, and physically mark victims, right? Some which require much less energy than a gang rape, a much less risk. Uh, but what but gang rape is extremely powerful emotionally. Um, it's unconsciously can mobilize uh, disgust and shame for just the perpetrators, the witnesses, and the victims. So it really impacts social ties. Um, and what I was, you know, I was interested in the fact that some of the same processes that make gang rape so devastating uh, can are also going on when individuals who are being witnessed in the same kind of transgressive activity have affirmative experiences. So you also find where individuals who are witnessed having sex um, are saying it was a means of developing um, more self-acceptance, more um, even identity, as in some cases where people have, you know, engaged in group sex and said, you know, now I understand, um, or I feel like I belong to this larger group. I have a, you know, I've had transcendent experiences. The positive and the negative are are linked in terms of the psychological processes, right? There's a vulnerability involved in being witnessed in this kind of transgressive activity, and that vulnerability can be put to social use. Yeah, I found that really intriguing when I was reading through the book about how the group sex was related to identity. And there are some cases that you point out in the book that are related to, um, I guess what you would call like modern, modern people, because this was not historical, um, and how they use group sex to affirm their identity. You also talked about some native peoples 
in how they had different rituals that involved group sex that marked different aspects of their lifetime. And I just wanted to ask you a few more questions about how we've used sex to create that identity or to create, in some cases, an alternate identity and maybe why we use group sex for that as opposed to other means, like how you stated. There's sometimes easier ways to accomplish that same thing, but for some reason it seems like part of the reason why group sex exists across cultures is somehow linked to identity. Well, um, and that's it's difficult because um, the identity conversation I really think has to be stick to um, the more contemporary data. Um, I'll just say a few words first about the um, difficulties with looking back in time at something like group sex. Um, Mm -hmm. Because I think one of the things that would be easy to do is try to make a link in terms of, um, say, identity processes across time and place. But it's it's not possible to do it because there's a couple problems with the data that we have. I mean, a lot of the data that we have on, uh, say, tribal ritual sex practices comes from missionaries, um, uh, some early ethnographers, some of whom were really uh, detailed and excellent ethnographers, and some of whom were very sensationalistic. I mean, some of these accounts that I ended up reading, they read like they're in People magazine or something. Um, You know, they're very uh, just sensationalistic. They're used to uh, evoke a sort of moral outrage back in the listeners, right? Um, mm-hmm. They're taking place when the uh, discourse of, you know, primitive versus civilized peoples is unfolding in Europe. And uh, it's so it's difficult to sometimes know what the truth of those accounts was. Um, I spent many fascinating hours tracking some of the references to group sex that appear in the anthropological literature back to their original texts as much as possible. Um, and a few times you'll find that one account is, say, you know, there was an account of group sex in Tahiti, for example, that several scholars have written about that, you know, it really can be traced back to one paragraph in, um, in a diary, in Captain Cook's diary. And it's very difficult to know if this is, you know, in any way a common ritual, if it was something that happened one time. The language has changed over the years to make it sound more um, scandalous. And and this happens other times. There are other examples of, say, um, uh, tribal rituals that involved cannibalism and ritual group sex that, you know, when I tracked them back, even in the original text, the missionary who was writing was saying, this is, I think this is just a rumor. This was told one time to me by a traitor, right? It, and so, but these rumors, are, again, they become very, um, they're powerful to a modern listener in particular ways that they may not have been for the people who were originally engaging in the practices. On the other hand, people who, there are accounts that are more trustworthy. We do know that people did occasionally have group sex for for other reasons. So, and we also know that it was transgressive because it doesn't appear all the time. It appears, you know, in terms, you know, embedded in systems of meaning and other practices. One of the questions that I wanted to ask you about was concerning sex as a taboo and how it's been used to create fear and morality. Um, you talked about that in some different circumstances. But can you 
expound upon that a little bit and discuss how that is related to the way that we view other people and ourselves? Okay, yeah, that's a great question. You know, there was two two sections of the book where I did um, case studies because to get into, you know, morals and belief systems and laws, it's all very um, complex. There's only so much you can do with each example. But I wanted to do these two case studies. Uh, one of them was on the Miranda Nim, uh, Papua New Guinea tribe, um, that was written about quite a bit in turn of the century anthropology. And then also on the sort of panic around uh, sex clubs in the U.S. Uh, after the AIDS crisis started. Um, and one of the things that I was looking at in those sections was how people's sexual behavior was singled out as a problem for um, certainly the spread of certain STDs, right? Um, in both cases, they were different STDs, but when people came in to try to correct or um, control the STD problem in both cases, one of the answers, one of the the strategies used was a type of moral education. Um, So the Morindanim who had had uh, group sex sex rituals periodically for both men and women um, to increase fertility, of course, this to the missionaries was extremely disturbing um, and so they really instituted a type of monogamy, um, trying to get them to live in single-family homes, which to people who had lived in sex-segregated housing was itself immoral, right? To suddenly put a man, a woman, and their offspring in a house was not um, an ideal situation for them. But it was what the missionaries who had come in had thought was going to control the problem. Um, and again what we see in the 1980s in the U.S. with the panic around AIDS was also a type of um, moral education um, and some abstinence discourses. Certainly abstinence or monogamy is one way to control for uh, the spread of STDs. But in both cases, the actual situations were much more complicated. What was causing the STDs, how it could have been handled, um, and so there's examples, and there are many more that could have been chosen, but there's examples throughout of where, you know, our belief about what is risky about sex impacts what we choose, the strategies we use to try to mitigate those risks. But assessments of risks are very emotional, and especially when it comes to sexuality, we're not so good at really assessing what risky behaviors are. Um, you know, are the risks of catching an STD worse than the risks of eating at a fast food restaurant and catching uh, some type of food poisoning, right? I mean, there, there are all these different ways that risk, that sexuality becomes just really uh, intertwined with risk discourses in a contemporary moments and places that um, are based on the morals, the beliefs, and, you know, the um, sort of emotional responses of people rather than the facts. Do you think that it's related to the issue that you brought up of boundary crossing? That, you know, there are there are different ways that you can try to cross boundaries and be adventurous and you could skydive. Or some people may choose to use group sex as a means of making that same type of adventurous leap that will teach them something about themselves. 
do you think that it's really the same type of activity, but it's just that it's our societies that are placing the moral issue on one and not the other? Well, I'm not sure that I think it's the same type of activity. Um, well, one thing, you know, definitely, you know, outsiders looking in at, say, a community that has transgressive sex, so people looking at in it, people who use sex clubs, right? I mean, mm-hmm. they are often demonized in the press or people respond with a lot of fear about that. And outsiders tend to think that it's mostly that they're, it's mostly about the sex, right? The focus is always on the sex, but not on all of the other types of practices and social relationships that go into someone choosing that space for their adventure or their self-discovery versus skydiving or rock climbing or something of that sort, right? Um, so I'd say it's similar in that people aren't there just for the sex, right? I mean, people don't choose, say, um, a swingers club versus, you know, um, skydiving just because they're interested in sex, but because they also like to socialize in particular ways. So contemporary lifestyle couples like to do things uh, together. They like to adult socialize and like certain kinds of music. They like um, particular types of, um, say, clothing, attire, fantasy, all of that. Um, And the same with different types of sex party cultures that we see around the world that are not geared at couples, but more at singles, whether it's um, gay men or men who want to have sex with men or youth. Um, There's always more to it than than just the sex. Mm -hmm. So really it's like a way to bond people or can be used as a way to bond people. Definitely. I mean, people are creating social bonds through sex um, across time and place. That is something that people have have done, right, Um, different ways. Um, and I would just say at the same time as, you know, we can have these sort of recreational cultures that grow up around group sex, or we can say that group sex is a type of adventure or form of self-discovery. There's also the fact that sex can bring out the best and the worst in us. So there's things that can impact our erotics that are different from the things that are impacting our enjoyment of other types of activities. So a lot of times shame a little bit of shame, not too much shame, is can heighten erotics. Right? Erotics can be heightened by racism, by classism, by sexism, um, by all of the things that we would consider uh, negative in other spheres. You know, they enter people's fantasies um, as hot or erotic. Um, mm-hmm. So sex has these elements of, um, I guess I would say, uh, I wouldn't like to use the words positive and negative, but sex can also bring out our wounds. From our wounds can be the things that we want and desire, can come from deep psychological wounds. Those can also become patterned in the, you know, in different cultural times and spaces. So I think that sex has all these complexities to it so that it's, we can look at it as play, but it's more than just play, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So was there anything that surprised you during your research? Um, yeah, there are several things. I mean, one of them I've touched on a little bit, uh, and that was really the um, the ways that what we can believe, the ways that we can look at a, what we think is a fact, a historical fact, um, and how those facts really break apart when we start to track them back, right? Um, so there's so many layers to what we believe is true about people, what we believe is true about what happened. Um, I really came out of this 
with a deep appreciation for people who do historical work. Um, that I don't think I ever understood how intriguing it was to, to really sort of trace these things back and see where our beliefs about people came from or our beliefs about their practices. Um, so that definitely uh, surprised me. Um, I think one of the other things that I was fascinated by, I think I expected it somewhat, um, but was the difference between how people tend to think about what an orgy is or what group sex is and then the realities of how it unfolds, right, for the people who are actually having it. And so the belief that really it's a, it's a free-for-all, it's chaotic, it's going to destroy society or that once um, one domino of morality falls, all the rest are going to fall. You know, you yeah, see these yeah. things um, in the popular media and um, in, you know, moral texts, things like that. But I guess I had, I was surprised at how um, really pervasive those beliefs about the orgy as destructive war, at least in contemporary Western thought, and how it had impacted um, even our accounts of what happened before. Um, but then also how that is really juxtaposed by what people are actually doing. Where When you walk into a sex club, it's certainly not a free-for-all. There are rules down to, you know, what time you have to take off your clothes or what clothes you're allowed to leave on, who can touch who. I mean, it's extremely organized um, in almost every space uh, around the world that I looked at, right? It's not unfolding just as chaotic. Even in violence, uh, which has chaotic elements, there are still deep organizations to how how an attack unfolds, who the first perpetrator is, how, you know, the, the way that turns are taken, um, objects that are used, it's deeply symbolic and meaningful. Yeah, I think that writing this was a continual learning experience for me. So could you sum up in general what your research over the 15 or so years that you've done, the sex research that you've done, what that's taught you about us as humans? Wow, that's a big question. But, you know, (laughs) one thing that I've come to believe is that we really, we put so much into sex, so much meaning uh, now anyway, right? um, And so we really put a lot of hope into sex and people put hope into sex in terms of revolutionary movements across time where, you know, it was maybe group sex or the orgies that would bring down capitalism or, you know, sex would uh, could cause a revolution in how we think about, you know, politics um, or social organization. And so there's a lot of hope there and often those hopes become dashed pretty quickly, right? Mm-hmm. And there's also a lot of fear in sex. So a lot of um, panics, a lot of rules and regulations and things that people think are going to keep them safe from the transgressive natures of sex. Uh, but in fact, you know, it's a, it's a lot less than both of those. You know, sex might sometimes be an answer for people who are looking for adventure or looking for self-discovery or um, trying to change social order. You know, there are times when people's desires, sexual desires, have sort of boiled over into political movements. Um, but it's asking too much of sex to try to put those meanings on it all the time. Um, and so I think 
what would a more realistic view of sex be? Uh, perhaps, you know, to allow ourselves to have mistakes and failures sexually that don't reflect back on the practices. So to allow for the positives and the negatives um, of sexual experiences. You know, one of the, in the, there's a gangbang girl uh, narrative in the book where she talks about her experiences um, with a rape and then her experiences of becoming the gangbang girl at parties in a large city um, and then of just leaving it behind, just saying that was part of my life, but it's not something I do anymore. And what I found fascinating about her, her narrative was that she didn't condemn it. She didn't say this ruined my life. She didn't say this uh, changed my life. She was able to sort of leave it behind. You know, we tend, we can tend to give it so much meaning, such an excess of meaning, as I think Gail Rubin said once, you know, that it um, stands in for hopes and fears and then takes the brunt of, you know, people's anger or disillusionment when it fails. So um, developing ways to look at both, not just uh, sex positivity, because I think that sex positivity is possible, but that there's also a negative thought. There are also these negatives that are going to emerge in sexuality that we can't deny. That's what I was talking about, the wounds or the um, ways that our erotics are shaped by um, boundaries or, you know, inappropriate partners, inappropriate feelings, inappropriate discourses, uh, relations of power, and all of those things that we can't discount. So can you tell us about any of the projects that you might have now or upcoming that you're excited about? You know, one of the things that I really wanted to explore more in the book, and I was not able to just because eventually you have to stop. <laughs> it was getting so big. Um, but was the idea of transcendence and the links between, uh, say, trance um, or, uh, you know, altered states of consciousness and sexuality and the ways that um, people have pursued these types of altered states, these types of transcendent experiences also across time and place in in different ways, from drug-taking to risk-taking of various types uh, to war and, and sex. And so uh, I think that my next work is going to be more of an exploration of the um, physiological, biological, and psychological elements of these transcendent experiences. So we'll see. But that's where it's going right now. <laughs> that sounds really interesting. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, Kate. Thank you. Also, it was a pleasure to be here. Thank you. You have been listening to an interview with Dr. Catherine Frank of her book, Plays, Role, and Groups, A Journey Through the World of Group Sex. Available now on Roland and Littlefoot Publishers.